Before we begin, in this series, I will frequently use the term Christian nationalism. First, I do not mean a person who practices Christianity. Instead, I have two related ideas in mind. One is the belief that America was founded as a Christian nation in covenant with the Christian God. And a related belief is that the government should privilege Christianity over all other viewpoints in law and practice. Christian nationalists I have in mind want the government to order society according to their understanding of the Bible and use state power to accomplish those goals. Some want to reinterpret the Constitution according to a revised history of the nation, particularly the founding era. Others want to change or ignore the Constitution. I will unpack these ideas through the series. The plan is to start with some specific cases of Christian nationalist storytelling, move toward understanding broader trends, and then explore the remarkable heritage of religious pluralism and religious freedom of conscience in the United States. And now, thanks for listening to Telling Jefferson Lies. We're here with David Barton. He's the founder of Wall Builders and America's premier historian. In the Bladensburg case, that the new standard will be, if it's traditional, historical, it's going to have a presumption of constitutionality. And so what I want to do, we have about 160,000 items out of American history, but this is the first textbook ever printed in America. It was done in 1690 in Boston. It was used into the 20th century, so it's through five different centuries that it appears. And it's interesting that in this textbook, uh, there are 43 questions on the Ten Commandments. So this is what we used in the 20th century, and just examples of that. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I just want to interrupt you. Make sure everybody understands. Those are the original these documents are original. that you're holding up there, not copies. And, and, for, the, are, and for the record, state your name and your position on the bill for us. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, David Barton, wall builders in favor of the Ten Commandments bill. Thank you. That fast-talking man was David Barton from Alito, Texas. On April 5, 2023, Barton provided testimony to the Texas Senate's Education Committee in favor of a bill that would require Texas public schools to post a version of the Ten Commandments in every classroom. Barton came prepared that day with a variety of rare items from his personal collection to wow the legislators. Um, about 10 years after that movement was going is when Cecil B. DeMille came out with the movie Ten Commandments. And so blockbuster movie, Charlton Heston, uh, Yul Brynner, Martha Scott, etc. And it's interesting, this is the program that was given. If you went to see the movie at a theater, when you walked in, this is a program that Cecil B. DeMille had everyone given. And it shows you the actors in the movie and who they are. But it also opens with a statement in here where he says that we've passed 32 million laws in America so far. And they said, and if you live by the Ten Commandments, you don't need 32 million laws. When they did the, the movie, Cecil B. DeMille took 9,000 extras. They went to, to Egypt, did the exodus. And then when they got to Mount Sinai, he had part of his crew go up on Mount Sinai, find some granite and bring it down, from which he carved the Ten Commandments that were used in the movie. This is actually from the movie. This is the Ten Commandments in the movie. And what's interesting is when Phil showed the picture of the Ten Commandments in Texas, you'll see that these two blocks are above the Ten Commandments on the stone. And that tells you it was erected by Cecil B. DeMille. In this case, 1961, Charlton Heston came to Texas to dedicate the Texas Ten Commandments. But this is how you know that it was done by Cecil B. DeMille. They did 180 of these huge marble statues across the nation. There's one in Oklahoma, one in Arkansas, etc. Uh, all the capitals had one. So this is traditional historical stuff, and that meets the test that the court has now given us for 
what can be done. So there's, it's hard to say that anything's more traditional in American education than was the Ten Commandments. Full disclosure, Barton talked about more than movie relics. He talked about court cases which mentioned the Ten Commandments favorably and showed the senators a copy of the Ten Commandments, which once hung in Kentucky classrooms. Overall, the Senate committee testimony was classic Barton, part amateur historian, part antique roadshow. He provided a high-speed show-and-tell designed to support the placement of a copy of the Ten Commandments in Texas schools. Inside the committee chamber, Barton was revered by the Republican legislators as an expert. Outside, it was a different story. Newspaper accounts of Barton's advocacy took on a decidedly different slant. Journalist Robert Downen, writing in the Texas Tribune, said Barton was a, quote, widely debunked amateur historian who has spent nearly four decades arguing that church-state separation is a myth, unquote. In an earlier report, Downen informed his readers of this piece of recent history. Barton's broader theories have been widely ridiculed and debunked by historians and other scholars, who note that he has no formal historical training and that his 2012 book, The Jefferson Lies, was recalled by its Christian publisher because of factual errors. So why did the Senate Education Committee have a guy providing expert testimony about history who had a book removed from publication due to historical errors? Who is David Barton anyway? This is Warren Throckmorton, co-author along with Michael Coulter of Getting Jefferson Right, Fact-Checking Claims About Thomas Jefferson. You're listening to the podcast series, Telling Jefferson Lies, a story about how history can be hijacked for ideological and political purposes. We begin with the extraordinary story of how David Barton's best-selling book about Thomas Jefferson was removed from publication due to historical errors. In this series, we also tell the story of getting Jefferson right, which was our response to the Jefferson lies and how that story continues with the second edition, which came out on November 1st, 2023. This is also a broader story about the surge of Christian nationalism and the misuse of history, which often goes along with it. Finally, we examine the consequences of believing myths and failing to get history right. This is episode one, America's premier historian, the origin story. So who is David Barton, and what is his project? 
I just want to say at the outset, I am so grateful to the wall builders and, and David and Rick and everybody involved. And I, I was introduced to David and his ministry a quarter century ago, and it has had such a profound influence on me and my work and, and my life and everything I do. So I'm just so grateful you guys continue to sew into this work and help equip uh, the soldiers on the front lines. And so thanks to all of you for being willing to serve That was Speaker of the House of Representatives Mike Johnson. The David Speaker Johnson is referring to is David Barton. Johnson said this in 2021 to a group of state legislators assembled by Barton at one of his pro-family legislators' conferences. For many years, Barton has invited state legislators to gather together in training sessions to advocate for a Christian nationalist legislative agenda. His organization, Wall Builders, has served as a de facto Republican Party candidate development system, moving legislators up from state legislatures to Congress and service throughout the government. Mike Johnson is the latest and most successful example. As the case of Mike Johnson illustrates, Barton is more political operative than historian. He has been vice chair of the Texas Republican Party he stumped for and ran political action committees for Ted Cruz when Cruz ran for the Republican presidential nomination in 2015. Barton, who is in his late 60s, has a bachelor's degree in religious education from Oral Roberts University, but has no formal education in history. In the main, professionally trained historians, even conservative Christian historians, don't think very highly of his work. We will hear from more of them in later segments, but here's a sample from the Master's College Dean and Professor of History, Greg Frazier. He just violates a lot of the rules of, of history. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't limit himself to reliable sources. He uses just whatever he can find and, and you know, by some obscure or whatever, or some article somewhere from some guy in his pajamas, you know, on the internet. Other, you know, just other fundamental things like counting all court, all statements in a court as the equivalent uh, and just saying the court said when it might be the Maryland court or it might be the Pennsylvania court or it might be some local court, treating them all as like as equivalent to the Supreme Court, treating dicta in a Supreme Court statement as as part of the ruling of the court. Just, it's just a, a whole host of, of things. I, I divide up, I do a, a presentation that I just actually did again in July, a two-part presentation, and I divide it up among factual errors, overstatements, which is also big on, assumptions as fact, misrepresentations, and false quotes, and then one of the biggies is who counts as a founding father? Because he'll quote people who lived in that time period, but they're not, they're not founding fathers. And so he treats anybody who agrees with him from that general time period as a founding father. And then he broadens, one of my favorite things too, is he, he broadens the category of the time of the founders. For example, he talks about Vidal versus Gerard in 1844, court case as being, quote, the time of the founders, end quote. Well, the last founder died. 
James Madison died in 1836. He was the last living founder. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just frustrating. You, you can't really, you can't really evaluate or describe him as a historian because he's so far removed from a historian. The accurate, but not very friendly description would be a propagandist. Um, Cause that's, that's what he does. Uh, he starts with a conclusion and then he bends everything to get to that conclusion. Again, I, you know, I, for years I like to think that it was just inadvertent or whatever, but there's so many things that are just so blatant that, you know, I just, it has to be intentional. Chair of the History Department at Messiah University, John Fia, places Barton in a tradition of faulty history that sees America founded as a Christian nation. I recognized right away what Barton is do- was doing because Barton was is not unique. I mean, there's there's a kind of you know historiographical history here. I I see David Barton as the natural extension of of some other people that were doing pretty much the same thing in the late 70s and 80 early 80s with the rise of the moral majority and and the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation. So. I did growing, you know, as I grew as a scholar and and as a Christian, I read people like Mark Knoll, George Marsden, Nathan Hatch. They wrote a great book called The Search for Christian America. And what they were doing was they were challenging an earlier manifestation of Barton, which was, you know, the, the Jerry Falwell, D. James Kennedy, all of these, you know, the reconstructionists of the world like Rush Dooney and, and Gary North, um, you know, who were arguing this sort of Christian nationalism, Christian nation, Christian nationalism was not being used then. It was just this idea America was a Christian, Christian founded as a Christian nation. Barton then was the second sort of the next wave of this. And that's where, as soon as my students started bringing this guy, David Barton, to my attention, people in my church, right? I go to an evangelical, sort of evangelical free church, sort of a mainstream evangelical denomination. They were like, what do you think of this? You know, and I thought, it's back, right? I mean, you know, this is this is kind of rising again from the ashes. And, you know, it's attracting, it's attracting people it's people are listening to him so so that's my introduction to Barton and then I started reading him and realized just how bad on multiple levels his history was according to Julie Ingersoll professor at the University of North Florida Barton started his political career trying to find causation and correlation well he says he got a he got a revelation from God to go to the library and look up the dates that prayer was removed from the public school. Why God didn't just tell him those dates, I don't know. But this was his revelation to go look that up. And then to also look up some statistics about uh, kind of decline in morality in America. Um, And of course, he had no idea about this distinction between correlation and causation and wrote a whole book about how what he called the volume of prayers. And I don't even know if he means quantity or loudness, actually, in the book. It's never clear. Uh, But he writes this whole book arguing that the reason we have higher divorce rates and higher suicide rates and drug use and alcoholism, we have all of this because the volume of prayer has declined because the public school kids are no longer praying. So his amateur sociology stopped kind of there. I have a hard time even saying he picked up history. He didn't. He picked up old books and 
read them through a theological lens that was, by the way, a Russian-y like lens and developed a theological kind of narrative about history. But I think he was doing theology. I don't think that was history. He was looking for God's hand in the, in the workings of America. Every superhero, or in this case, premier historian, has an origin story. It is a story of beginnings clouded in some mystery, but with enough detail to create a plausible connection from the starting point to the hero's mission. Mild-mannered, small-town Christian school teacher David Barton was called by God himself to recover the forgotten history taken from us by the evil Supreme Court. God gave his servant David a mystery to solve. The answer would reveal to the nation the connections and truths which had been hidden from them by leftists and progressives. If you are called by God, doesn't that mean you can't be questioned? Doesn't that mean your message has to be true? Portraying your message as coming from God gives the man of God authority. Throughout his public career, Barton has expounded on what he often calls a biblical view of countless topics, from economics to post-traumatic stress disorder. He has told his audiences that abortion influences climate change and that there will never be a vaccine for AIDS because of teaching found in the Bible. Wrapping himself in the Bible and his calling, he doesn't need training or expertise. All he needs is his biblical worldview. As we shall see, his audiences are particularly vulnerable to this group bias. When Barton received his calling, he was teaching in a small Christian school started by his parents. Ingersoll argues that the atmosphere encouraged Barton toward a revisionist providential history influenced by the Reconstructionist author, Rusus J. Rashtuni. And so the basic argument I make is that the thing that Rushduni did that was different from some other people who were uh, articulating some similar kinds of ideas at the same time, like Schaefer, what Rushduni did was he built a structure of institutions that could, that could instantiate that way of looking at the world and perpetuate it across the culture and across generations. So in my view, anyone who sent their kid to a Christian school is influenced by a Rushduni. They may not know that. They may not know who he is. That doesn't mean they're a secret Christian reconstructionist, but it does mean that he was the person that laid out the biblical argument for this, that went to all these court cases and fought to think of how you educate your kid as a religious freedom right. He traveled around the country starting schools. He encouraged other people of similar mind to write books about how to start Christian schools, to develop curriculum. All of that happened around Rush Juni. And so when people are at Christian schools today, they are influenced by Rush Juni, even if they don't know that they are. And I think what happened with Barton's family is in the, in the water of conservative evangelicalism at the time, was this idea that you should get your kids out of public schools. The most enduring image I have of Rusus J. Rashtuni is his interview with Bill Moyers in 1987. Moyers reminded Rashtuni that he called for the death penalty for 15 crimes delineated in the Old Testament. Rashtuni calmly replied that God requires the death penalty as justice for crimes such as homosexuality and the incorrigible son, and therefore he must support civil laws making these offenses capital crimes. 
In his many writings, Rushduni also minimized the Holocaust and discouraged interracial marriage. Although these views might be more acceptable to some of today's Christian nationalists, not many evangelicals associated themselves directly with Rushduni. And consistent with what Ingersoll told me, Barton denies reading any of Rushduni's books. However, some of the sources cited in his early books were clearly Reconstructionist or influenced by them. For instance, John Eidsmo, Verna Hall, Gary DeMar, and Christian nationalists John Whitehead and Stephen McDowell were his main sources. For a time, Barton had an article on his Wall Builders website which favorably cited Rushduni's views on slavery. Basically, Reconstructionism holds that the job of the Christian is to reconstruct society to be a Christian society with Christian culture, customs, and laws. There are several versions of this theme, and Barton has been associated with more than one. Tracking influence is a tricky business, and we'll come back to Reconstructionism and address the different kinds of biblical law advocates in a later segment. But for now, it's enough to note that Barton didn't come up with his views of providential history in a vacuum. According to his now out-of-print book, America to Pray or Not to Pray, Barton got his revelation in July 1987. In addition to that book, which was published in 1988, Barton recorded lectures linking the rise of all manner of social evils to the Supreme Court decisions on prayer and Bible reading in 1962 and 1963. What happened in the nation when we separated religious principles from public arenas? Well, what do you think happens when you start telling students You can't see the Ten Commandments. You might obey them. Things like don't steal and don't kill. That has to have an effect on behavior. It did. Washington, in yet another warning from his farewell address, accurately predicted what has occurred. He said, let it simply be asked, where is the security for life, for reputation, and for property if the sense of religious obligation desert? The sense of religious obligations has deserted, and currently there now seems to be no security for life, for reputation or for property. For example, consider violent crime. After having remained statistically stable for years, since the removal of religious principles in 1962, the number of violent crimes has now surpassed population growth by 794%, causing the United States to become the world's leader in violent crime. As late as 2015, Barton was still telling churches and Christian groups that violent crime was up between 588 and 694 percent since the Supreme Court took forced prayer and Bible reading out of schools. Here he is in 2014 telling an Iowa affiliate of Focus on the Family that crime was up due to the Supreme Court decisions. This is violent crime. This is one that we took the Bible out of school, 62-63, 694% increase. They say, this is why we're playing around the fringes out here. The way Barton misuses crime data alone should disqualify him as an expert in policy analysis. Although he correctly told his audiences that violent crime, including the murder rate, rose from the early 1960s to the mid-1990s, he didn't tell them the rest of the story. What Barton didn't tell those audiences is that crime has dramatically decreased since the mid-1990s. The correct graph looks like a mountain with the mid-1990s as the peak. Violent crime has decreased dramatically since then, 
See the show notes for links to information verifying these facts. Even though crime has fallen steadily since the mid-1990s, Barton's chart in church presentations doesn't extend beyond the mid-1990s. He doesn't show his audiences all the data. All he shows is the rise from the 1960s to the 1990s and then says the reason for the spike in crime is due to the Supreme Court's decision about teacher-led prayers and Bible readings. He never offers an explanation for the decrease in crime since the 1990s. Now, according to Barton and the Christian Nationalists, the nation has continued to decline morally, but they are silent about the reason why. They are silent about the decline in crime. There is at least one other major problem for Barton's thesis. There is a documented long-term sharp decline in homicide rates in the United States when measured from the nation's colonial era through the present. The rates varied widely from colony to colony, but according to Randolph Roth in his book American Homicide, rates in the mid-1600s ranged from 30 murders per 100,000 in New England to 400 per 100,000 in Maryland. Overall, the national murder rate has fallen in a jagged line downward to the current 5.5 per 100,000. Throughout our history, homicide rates have varied by region and a host of other factors, which have no apparent connection to prayer and Bible reading in schools. In short, Barton's analysis was just as Greg Frazier said, biased and designed to give him the result he wanted. Seems like God would have known that, and if it was God talking to him, would have told him. According to a profile written in 2005 in the Texas Monthly by Nate Blakesley, Barton stumbled into history without God's help by reading about little-known founding fathers such as James Wilson in the basement of his local courthouse. Blakesley wrote, Barton reincorporated his nonprofit as Wall Builders and announced a new mission statement for his ministry, presenting America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. He self-published his first work of history called The Myth of Separation in 1989 and followed it up shortly after with a video. Now, originally, Barton presented himself as a researcher and an educator, but after 1992, he started to present himself publicly as a historian. Sometimes the descriptions were effusive. For instance, in a 1998 San Antonio, Texas newspaper ad, he called himself, quote, America's leading historian on our religious heritage and civic responsibility, unquote. Barton's early books and videos got a lot of favorable attention from leaders on the Christian right. He was popular among groups like the Christian Coalition, Eagle Forum, Focus on the Family, and Campus Crusade for Christ. He traveled the nation promoting his views of America as a Christian nation. Jerry Falwell sold his materials at the bookstore in Liberty University. Early news coverage of Barton was quite friendly, with very little balanced reporting. 
The first newspaper op-ed scrutinizing his claims that I was able to find was by a Betty Mills in the Bismarck, North Dakota Tribune on June 2, 1993. It appears she derived her material from an article which came out in April of 1993 in Church and State Magazine written by Rob Boston, the communications director for the Americans United for Separation of Church and State. I don't think there were people looking at him from the get-go, but it didn't take long. My first article about Barton appeared in our magazine, Church and State, in uh, 1993. And not long after that, the, the folks at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, which is a moderate Baptist body, they, they produced a, a document debunking a lot of his material. And of course, the Baptist Joint Committee would you know, be an explicitly Christian body, so that was a welcome voice. Around the same time, some academics began to take a good look at what Barton was doing and point out his errors. One of the first to do that was Derek Davis, who ran the Center for Church-State Studies at Baylor University, so that was an important voice. And also a professor that I worked with for a number of years at the University of Richmond, Robert Alley, uh, since deceased, but uh, he was a professor of humanities at the University of Richmond, and he he really let Barton have it. Huh? <laughs> Bob was... Um, Never one to shy from speaking his mind, let's put it that way. One of the issues about which Dr. Alley blasted Barton was Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist. Barton thoroughly botched up the whole issue in the book The Myth of Separation and his video America's Godly Heritage. Here is a quote from Dr. Alley's 1995 article, Public Education and the Public Good, published in the academic journal William and Mary Bill of Rights Journal. Quote, David Barton in America's Godly Heritage comments upon the Danbury letter with outrageous disregard for the facts. After totally missing the point of the Danbury letter, Barton incorrectly asserts that in his reply, Jefferson explained that the First Amendment was to prohibit the establishment of a national denomination only. He also fabricates a long list of things Jefferson supposedly used to explain the First Amendment. It is appalling that the Jefferson letter, readily accessible to the public, should be so abused. Barton's claims have no relationship to truth, but can be floated easily to support political agendas concerning school prayer." Unquote. One of those claims Barton made, which reverberates to this day, relates to the meaning of Jefferson's Wall of Separation. In his 1989 book, The Myth of Separation, and the first recording of his popular video presentation, America's Godly Heritage. Barton claimed that Thomas Jefferson said in an 1802 speech that the wall of separation metaphor was intended to be a one-directional wall. And that wall was meant to keep the government out of the church, but in the other direction allowed Christian principles to influence the government. Here's how Barton described the wall of separation in the first edition of The Myth of Separation. Now, quote, that wall was originally introduced as and understood to be a one-directional wall protecting the church from the government, unquote. In America's Godly Heritage video, Barton expanded his interpretation a bit. But the phrase separation church and state, where did it come from? Well, it came out of an incident that happened in 1801. In 1801, the Danbury Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut heard a rumor 
that the Congregationalist denomination was about to be made the national denomination of America, and that distressed them, and it should have. So they fired off a letter to President Thomas Jefferson to express their concern. January the 1st, 1802, Jefferson addressed that group of Danbury Baptists, and in his address, he assured them. He said, the First Amendment has erected a wall of separation between church and state. He said, but that wall is a one-directional wall. It keeps the government from running the church, but it makes sure that Christian principles will always stay in government. Now, all we hear of his speech anymore is just half the speech, that the First Amendment has erected a wall of separation. Well, he made it very clear that God's principles are to stay in government, but the government's not to run the church. And that was the definition of the First Amendment, was to protect the church from the government, not vice versa. Well, as time progressed, there was no national denomination established, so his speech fell into disuse. There is so much wrong in such a short span of time. The Danbury Baptist did not write to Jefferson solely based on a specific rumor. Jefferson did not respond to them in a speech, but rather a letter. Jefferson did not say the wall of separation was one-directional, or tell them that the government was to be run by Christian principles. Someone must have gotten to Barton back in those days of embryonic superherohood because he eventually realized Jefferson responded to the Danbury Baptist in a letter. Although he doesn't now use the term one-directional, he has continued to promote the idea that the wall of separation is designed to guard the church from the government but allows the church to influence the government. If that sounds like current events, it is because you could hear the same thing by listening to our current Speaker of the House. Here is Mike Johnson on MSNBC's Squawk Box on November 14th of last year. And so they, they wanted faith to be a big part of that. The, the separation of church and state is a, is a misnomer. People misunderstand it. Of course, it comes from a phrase that was in a letter that Jefferson wrote. It's not in the Constitution. And what he was explaining is they did not want the government to encroach upon the church, not that they didn't want principles of faith to have influence on our public life. It was exactly the opposite. In 2023, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is channeling the same view Barton first articulated in 1989. Let that sink in a minute. If you're wondering what this trip down memory lane is all about, here's one answer. Past, even the distant past, is prologue when the myth refuses to die. In 2005, Barton told Texas Monthly reporter Nate Blakesley that he never said the wall of separation between church and state was one directional. So I can get it just right. Let me quote Blakesley's entire paragraph on this. I quote, Perhaps the most embarrassing gaffe Barton has been accused of is an egregious mischaracterization of Jefferson's famous letter to the Danbury Baptist. Barton allegedly said that Jefferson referred to the wall of separation between church and state as one directional. That is, it was meant to restrain government from infringing on the church's domain, but not the other way around. There is no such language in the letter. This mistaken quote does not appear on Barton's list of retractions, however, and when I asked Barton about it, he denied ever having misquoted Jefferson's letter in any of his publications. He claimed instead that unspecified critics had merely heard him mention the one-directional wall in a speech and that he had in fact been summarizing Jefferson's general views on the First Amendment not purporting to paraphrase or quote from the Danbury letter. 
In other words, his critics had dishonestly taken his words out of context to make him look bad. Unquote. I will acknowledge, it is often hard to know when someone is speaking, when to know where a speaker means a quote to end. It does seem Barton is quoting Jefferson. Listen again to the original audio of America's Godly Heritage on this point. But the phrase, separation church and state, where did it come from? Well, it came out of an incident that happened in 1801. In 1801, the Danbury Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut, heard a rumor that the Congregationalist denomination was about to be made the national denomination of America, and that distressed them, and it should have. So they fired off a letter to President Thomas Jefferson to express their concern. January the 1st, 1802, Jefferson addressed that group of Danbury Baptists, and in his address, he assured them. He said, the First Amendment has erected a wall of separation between church and state. He said, but that wall is a one-directional wall. It keeps the government from running the church, but it makes sure that Christian principles will always stay in government. Now, all we hear of his speech anymore is just half the speech, that the First Amendment has erected a wall of separation. Well, he made it very clear that God's principles are to stay in government, but the government's not to run the church. And that was the definition of the First Amendment, was to protect the church from the government, not vice versa. Well, as time progressed, there was no national denomination established, so his speech fell into disuse. There can be no question that Barton was mistaken about several aspects of the Danbury letter. Perhaps a more important takeaway from this incident is how Barton responded to these errors. Initially, he simply changed his video presentations without comment. Even though erroneous videos are circulating, there's no record of Barton correcting himself. I was able to find three different versions of America's Godly Heritage uh, just on YouTube. It was as if the errors never happened. And then later in 2005 with Nate Blakesley, Barton simply denied there was a problem. This foreshadows the main story I want to tell later in the series about the Jefferson Lies, which was pulled from publication in 2012. Related to that incident in 2013, Heritage Foundation fellow Jay Richards told me that Barton claimed that he is a political entity and as such can never admit error publicly. Another major brush with public disgrace in those early days was the revelation that numerous quotes in the myth of separation could not be found in primary sources. A primary source is a first-hand account from someone, such as a letter, a newspaper account, or a government document. Barton had to admit he could not find primary sources for a dozen quotes he used to make his case in the myth of separation. A quote that became a focal point for public interest was attributed to James Madison. In The Myth of Separation and his various videos, Barton had Madison saying the following. When the court declares something unconstitutional, it is inferring that our founding fathers, the men who drafted the Constitution, would have opposed it. However, notice what James Madison, the chief architect of the Constitution, said about the Ten Commandments. He said, we have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. We've staked the future of all of our political institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. That which the chief architect of the Constitution considered to be the most crucial aspect of American constitutional government, the current court has declared to be unconstitutional. The Madison quote became a matter of public interest in 1994 when Rush Limbaugh used it on his radio program and then was subsequently called out 
by a group called Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. A report by the group was picked up by columnist Howard Rosenberg in the LA Times, which he used to poke fun at Limbaugh for his inaccurate citations. That column incensed Limbaugh's ditto heads, as they were called, and one wrote in to the Times to confidently say that Madison indeed did make that quote and used Barton's myth of separation as his source. The next year, Barton issued an advisory to his followers that they shouldn't use the Madison quote, along with 11 others. His reasoning was curious, and like his history, it has changed over the years. Here was a a portion of his initial rationale from his website in 1997. This might be the closest to an acknowledgement of an error I've seen. Quote, We hope these comments and analyses help our readers in their own research and rhetoric. To those who have used the above quotations, do not be discouraged. They have a source. We are simply unable to take them to an original primary document, which is the standard for which we all must strive. In this regard, we have traversed the learning curve. As the church-state debates continue, we are all called to a higher standard of scholarship. Advocates of a secular society uses the slightest discrepancy to advance their own intolerant and bigoted agenda. Ignoring their own weaknesses, they attempt to discredit both the message and messenger of America's religious history. Their efforts are futile, however, for the religious foundations of America to include the interactions between church and state are well documented and easily unearthed. Now is the time to clean things up. Unquote. One of the key fact checkers on the case was again University of Richmond's professor, Robert Alley. He consulted with the editors of Madison's Collected Works, and in 1993 they issued a letter denying that the Ten Commandment quote or anything like it existed in his correspondence or works. For his part, Limbaugh acknowledged in 1994 that the Madison quote was bogus. Alley concluded his analysis of what he called the Ten Commandments hoax by saying, quote, But after all, it is incumbent solely upon the perpetrators of this myth to prove it by at least one citation. This they cannot do. Their style is not revisionism. It is anti-historical. We likely have not heard the last of this nonsense, but it is important to press the new media frauds to document what they claim because they cannot do so in most instances, time may ultimately discredit the lot of them, Alley was certainly correct about the perpetrators of the myth being anti-historical, but he was not correct that time might discredit them. Case in point, here we are today. Beyond the historical interest in Barton's background, the story is of enduring interest in order to examine how Barton handled the situation. Even though he made errors that would sink the careers of an academic historian, he criticized actual historians for flaws Barton made up. Playing the victim, Barton told his followers, quote, Advocates of a secular society use the slightest discrepancy to advance their own intolerant and bigoted agenda. Ignoring their own weaknesses, they attempt to discredit both the message and messenger of America's religious history, unquote. 
The slightest discrepancy, he says. Well, I don't know if a dozen quotes is a slight discrepancy. Several years later, Barton was still responding to criticism over the quotes. In a 2003 response to a 1999 article by Baylor University professor Barry Hankins, Barton attempted to turn the academic tables on Hankins. Barton wrote, quote, I publicly announced that I would no longer use the Madison quote and others, not because it was inaccurate, but rather because I had determined to raise the scholarship of the debate from an academic level to the higher level of legal documentation, known as best evidence, a level of documentation that most of those in your camp, meaning Hankins, have yet to embrace, unquote. It took weapons-grade arrogance to claim the scholarly high ground and accuse Barry Hankins of low academic standards when Barton had to acknowledge using a dozen bogus quotes. On top of that, he knew he had edited his video several times to fix egregious and disqualifying errors. There is one thing that Barton does admit in his response to Hankins. His 1996 book, Original Intent, replaced the myth of separation. Of course, he put the best spin on it, saying, quote, As a result of my decision to elevate the level of documentation, we replaced the myth of separation with original intent, a work with over 1,400 footnotes rather than the 750 in myth and a work that not only meets legal standards of scrutiny, but that also arrives at the identical historical conclusions reached in the myth of separation, unquote. Uh, Let's keep it real. In fact, The Jefferson Lies was not David Barton's first book of history to be taken out of publication. The myth of separation was, if we count America to pray or not to pray, the first book, that's three books pulled from publication. Frame it however you want to, but you can't buy the myth of separation or America to pray or not to pray in the Wall Builders website store. Barton does not sell these books. Barton was the publisher. He does sell The Jefferson Lies. So, in effect, he removed those first two books from publication. So today we told an origin story. But what kind? Did we tell about the beginnings of America's premier historian? Or something else?
As it turned out, Barton's selective retelling of the founding spread far and wide, farther and wider than the efforts to contain it. There's good reason to believe we are not better off for it today. Part of the reason we released a second edition of Getting Jefferson Right is to address the resurgence of selective history. In the national conversation about the state of democratic principles, what to teach about the nation's history is often at the center. Throughout this series, we discuss the harm to our institutions, which comes from faulty and revisionist history. The complete retelling of America's religious heritage is a remarkable story of religious pluralism and freedom of conscience. Everybody involved with this podcast believes that this is a story which cannot be repeated enough. In the next segment, we track the rapid expansion of Christian nationalist storytelling until we get to the rise and fall of the Jefferson Lies. My goal is to bring out the episodes on Wednesdays. Telling Jefferson Lies is brought to you by Getting Jefferson Right. More information about the book is at gettingjeffersonright.com. The podcast is produced and written by Warren Throckmorton. Today's episode was hosted by Warren Throckmorton. Musical background is by Jonathan Swaim, Roman Candle, and Warren Throckmorton. Today's closing song is The Fight for Me by Greg Thornberry. Telling Jefferson Lies theme song is The World Awaits Us All by Roman Candle. See the show notes for more credits. And be sure to like the episode and subscribe to the podcast. Also, send a link to the podcast to a friend and spread the word. Thanks for listening. Sing, dance, and skill. Summon me.